First off, allow me to welcome you all uh, to the foreign country of Silver Spring. <laughs> it is not just a backup on the Beltway anymore. It's a real place, and real people live here, and a lot of you are here. Yay, St. Bernadette parishioners. So, welcome. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, Heavenly Father, we turn our eyes to you with confidence in this season when, at your word, we relinquish our grasp on those things which do not help us and call out to you to help us, guide us, strengthen us, and give us your life. Look upon us in your mercy this night. Pour forth your spirit that the words we hear be inspired and the hearts who receive them do so willingly and find your light and your joy and your truth. Give us your strength who turn to you as your son taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Monsignor Smith, and, uh, and all the parishioners of St. Bernadette's that are here. We're very grateful that you have opened the doors of St. Bernadette's to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Our speaker tonight received a Master's of Arts degree from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas the Angelicum in Rome in 1996 and was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Arlington the same year. Father Scalia has published articles in various periodicals including This Rock, First Things, and Human Life Review and is the founder, editor, and publisher of the Fenwick Review. He is no doubt one of the rising stars, uh, one of the young rising stars in the Catholic Church. Um, and I will tell you that I do not believe the Institute of Catholic Culture would exist today had it not been Father Scalia's vision um, and hope in the Lord that he would bring our, our dream to fruition. And so I uh, am honored to welcome Father Paul Scalia. Do you have a pocket? Okay. Stars also fall. Thank you, Sabatino. Um, piece of advice that he gave me uh, before the introduction was, he said, Father, make sure you conclude. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I say that to you by way of warning. Our topic this evening is the natural law. And uh, it's, well, the natural law is always timely. We'll get to that later. It's immutable. Um, but uh, it is something that the Holy Father has really encouraged us to, uh, to recover a sense of and uh, to uh, enter into the public square, especially uh, by way of this. And a lot of his uh, talks, especially to the diplomat, to the diplomatic corps, uh, he emphasizes this. Uh, to begin a consideration of the natural law, which is a topic that is far more con controversial than really it should be, I think we can consider some secular examples of the natural law because, after all, if it is a, the natural law, we should find it everywhere. So first, consider what the Nazis were accused of after the war in, Nurnberg, in Nuremberg. Crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity. And the world was in agreement on this. Now, how did we know that those things were crimes against humanity. 
where was it written? What body had promulgated that decree that said the following are crimes against humanity? Well, of course, no one ever promulgated it. It was something that is universally agreed upon is that you probably, all things considered, shouldn't exterminate or try to exterminate an entire ethnic race. It's a crime against humanity. These were crimes against human nature itself, the principles of human nature, a violation of the design and the purpose of the human person. And the world instinctively recognized. And no one, no one tried to say, well, you know, come on, we, we all do things differently and uh, we, we, we shouldn't fault them for doing things differently. The world was united in acknowledging this crime against humanity. Or think of what we call human rights, what our founders of our nation called inalienable rights. Uh, these are human because they arrive from our very nature, from our being. Uh, they are inalienable for the same reason. We cannot alienate certain rights and responsibilities, by the way. Uh, we cannot alienate these from the nature of man because we cannot change the nature of man. And so the refusal to acknowledge natural law or a common human nature leads inevitably to a violation of human rights. For example, once again, the Nazis, whose racist ideology rejected any true human nature. Once that was rejected, it shouldn't surprise us that such grave crimes were committed. Crimes against humanity, human rights, these are, I think, some secular examples. Now, let me give you some uh, other less edifying but more entertaining examples from our own culture. Uh, we, and it's all the more amazing to me, and that's why I want to point these out, because our culture wants to sort of like separate itself from the natural law, but keeps getting tugged back towards it. The natural law is immutable. Uh, it's like Lady Macbeth, you know, out damn spot. Our culture can't get rid of the natural law. Out damn natural law, but it's still there. So our culture, even ours, is stained by the natural law. So some examples. Props, for example. I'm taking these uh, definitions, by the way, from that scholarly work, the Online Urban Dictionary. Okay. Okay. So first, props. Now, for those of you who don't know what this means, let me read the definition. Props, short for propers. Don't forget that the entire word propers is used in the song Respect, written by Otis Redding and most famously recorded by Aretha Franklin in 1967. Um, slang for accolades, proper respect, or just dues, popularized in the 1980s by rappers who shortened the term propers, which was in turn being used as an abbreviated version of proper respect, at least by the 1960s. The increase in this term's usage during the late 1980s and early 1990s coincided with an increasing fascination with the mafia within rap circles. Both communities have traditionally placed great emphasis on the importance of, giving, of earning and giving respect. Props. Giving someone the proper respect, credit, what is due to the person. So I, I want to give Monsignor Smith props for, for, for hosting us this evening. That is, uh, according to the natural law, what is owed to him. It is proper. It is just to do that. It's an acknowledgment of justice. And if I didn't do that, well, you know, I would be dissing 
father, or Monsignor Smith. And so the uh, definition, uh, dis is a verb, a slang word that came from and therefore shares the, de de the same definition as to disrespect. A form of disrespecting someone, their homies, or their mama. It's fascinating that we find this instinct for justice uh, in, in urban culture, in the very culture that kind of prides itself on being detached from tradition and what came before it, prides itself on being rebellious, yet feels this tug towards respect, proper dues, uh, and justice. And so, propers, Dis, these are acknowledgments of a person's dignity and what they've accomplished. Uh, that not to give uh, a man his propers or to dis him would uh, be to do an injustice. Very interesting how this definition also says disrespecting someone, their homies or their mama. Uh, again, this term homies, it, it's fascinating to find it in our culture. It's the natural law sort of bubbling up in our culture that what is most immediate and dear to us, these are my homies, my homeboys here, uh, because we still, uh, in a culture in which the family is, is being broken apart, we still have this instinct to call that, what is that which is closest to me my, my homies, my homeboys, or whatever else. And the last definition, the last example from this lofty culture, um, TMI. Too much information defined as way more than you need or want to know about someone. And this one is very interesting because if there is anything that our culture doesn't seem uh, to mind, it's too much information. Ours is a culture in which we want to talk about everything. And so we blog about ourselves endlessly and we go on talk shows and we tell anybody who will listen about ourselves and people go and they, they, they surf the net to, to find out everything about anyone and then pass it on to their friends. But even in our culture, there's a limit. There's a faint hint of the acknowledgement of modesty. That sometimes some things are, well, too much information. That some information ought not be shared, that we do not need to reveal everything. Now, with these examples, I'm not just being silly, although I'm certainly being silly, um, but I don't think I'm being as silly as people who take time to compile a dictionary of slang. Um, the point is, these terms indicate a natural uh, inclination and tendency towards uh, certain things, towards justice, towards respect towards modesty, even in our culture. It shows a tendency towards what has traditionally been called the, moral, the natural law. Uh, it's evidence that the natural law really is what one author calls uh, what we can't not know, what we can't not know. And we cannot say that these things, these examples from pop culture, we can't say that they're culturally conditioned, can we? because they come from a culture that prides itself on rebelling against cultural conditioning. Uh, no, they, they come from something deeper, perhaps maybe even from the nature of man. Now, I want to say a few words about this phrase, natural law. Uh, 
the concept is neither natural nor is it a law in the common use of those two words. Let me explain. First, natural. In the common use of the word natural, we take it to indicate simply what happens in nature or what comes naturally, what our nature feels like, if we would say it that way, perhaps. And all sorts of silliness and immorality is justified by this fuzzy thinking, that if it happens in nature, if I have this sort of natural feeling for it, that it must be okay. This limits the term natural to the merely biological or the physical. But natural law is not the same as the laws of nature. We're talking about two different concepts here. We mean something different by the word natural. It does not indicate simply what occurs or happens to be present in the natural world. But it indicates that aspect of us that makes us human and not some other creature, and that aspect of us that enables us to know certain truths. Natural law is not just a matter of how we work biologically or physically. It goes deeper than that. It also includes uh, the spiritual, psychological, and emotional. Just because something in ha happens in nature does not mean that it is in accord with God's design. We know that there are many things in nature that are aberrations, as we call them. And so the Catechism says, this law is called natural not in reference to the nature of irrational beings, but because reason which decrees it properly belongs to human nature. Reason which decrees natural law belongs to us properly by nature. Second, the word law. Most people will understand this to indicate some command that proscribes or prescribes certain behaviors. Don't do this, do that. But we don't find any such commands in nature. The porcupine might be an exception. That, that's a pretty clear command, I guess. But generally speaking, nature has no sign or instruction manual, instruction manual or list of rules that tell us do this, don't do that. By the word law, we mean simply what our design requires. So think of the sign, the little sign that would be on the car's gas tank years ago. Some of you won't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Hopefully most of you do. It's a harder uh, example to use. Fewer and fewer people understand it. The little sign that said, unleaded only. Okay. Yes, I'm dating myself. Um, that is not a command. It doesn't say thou shalt not put uh, leaded fuel in this gas tank. It's simply saying unleaded only. It's a statement about the design of the car. And the reason, which is in the user of the automobile by nature, can look at that and determine how this vehicle ought to be used. Unleaded only is not a law in the ordinary understanding of the word, but it carries all of the force of a command or even of a law. It is a statement about what is. It's a statement about the design that leads us to understand what we ought and ought not do. 
from what is, we can understand what we ought and ought not do. I ought to put in unleaded fuel, not leaded. And that's a good way to understand the natural law. It is a knowledge, it is the knowledge of a purposeful design that obliges us to act in a particular way. It does not so much command us as it simply tells us how we are designed. It reveals to us our purpose. And by knowing and appreciating that design or that purpose, we can reasonably conclude about how we ought to live. What I really want to emphasize here is the concept of a purposeful design. A design indicates what a certain thing is, or the purpose indicates it. And so, okay, now I've got some parishioners present here, and they're going to regret it. They'll never come to Maryland again. Okay. Okay, what is this? A watch. Okay, well, that's what it's called, but what is a watch? It tells time. You've just defined it according to its design and its purpose. What is this? It's a cheap cell phone, okay? It doesn't even have a camera. Uh, as a lady, when I bought it, said, that doesn't have a camera. I said, well, people have been using cell phones without cameras for hundreds of years. So, um, so what, what, does a, what is a cell phone? It's a communication device. We understand it according to its purpose. And so on with everything else. And this is the way we can understand ourselves. And notice that if there is no design, then there is no purpose. And without a purpose, then you know, the watch or the phone, well, they lose all significance, and we get rid of them, like eight-track tapes. So, you know, well, what's this for? Well, get, get, get rid of it. Um, now, if the watch or the phone could be happy, they would be happy to the extent that they are living according to their design and achieving their purpose. My watch would say, I've got a new battery in me. I'm very happy. I'm keeping the right time. The phone would say, you know, I've got, I've got four bars here, a fully charged battery. It's great. Be very happy. Um, because happiness comes by observing the design, uh, the purposeful design by which uh, we are created. Uh, a friend of mine was lectured one time by, by a man from France about how to properly uh, store cheese in the refrigerator. He said, don't put it in the Ziploc bag, he instructed. It should be wrapped uh, lightly in, I think, wax paper or something that, that can breathe. And he said, and I won't try to do his French accent because I can't do it, but he, he said, well, it, it, it would, if you don't do it this way, the cheese would become, well, how do you say, sad. Okay. <laughs> Now, the whole concept of cheese becoming sad seems absurd, but really, again, it's touching on the natural law because the cheese would not be, well, living according to its design, to be the, the cheese it was created to be, okay? So it would be upset because its design, its purpose was frustrated. Now, the difference between a watch, a phone, or a piece of cheese is that these things cannot rebel against their design and their purpose. But you and I can, and we do. Each thing acts according to what it is, according to its design. But only man does so freely and rationally. 
And only man can rebel against that design. Natural law articulates the design and the purpose of our human nature, of what makes us human, what we are for. And from that design arise all of the oughts and ought-nots of morality. So consider again the phrase crimes against humanity. The world agreed on this. These were crimes against humanity, not because the Nazis had tried to kill all of humanity. They just, it was just a specific group, okay, a couple of specific groups. No, they were crimes against humanity because they were gravely contrary to our human nature, to humanity itself, to the design and the purpose that is written into us. I suppose the Nazis could have even argued that such things actually occur in nature because the Nazis were not the first, nor were they the last, to try to exterminate an an entire ethnic group. But no one would have accepted the argument if they had stepped forward and said, well, come on, this has happened before. This happens in nature. That argument would not have worked because we know intuitively that just because something happens in nature does not mean it is in accord with our nature. So, what is the natural law? We go to St. Thomas for that. Uh, Not because he's the only one, but just because, come on, he's St. Thomas. Um, He says, it is nothing else than the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. So it's a participated kind of knowledge, our human knowledge of God's design. Aquinas again in a different writing. The natural law is nothing other than the light of understanding placed in us by God. Through it, we know what we must do and what we must avoid. God has given us this light or law at the creation. So it's natural because it is accessible to us who possess reason by nature. Uh, Dennis McInerney, uh, whose uh, brother Ralph McInerney just, uh, at Notre Dame just recently died. Dennis is a first-rate uh, philosopher in his own right, uh, teaches at the Fraternity of St. Peter's Seminary. He writes that this knowledge is almost intuitive in the sense that as soon as we become aware of these truths, we immediately see them as true. Now notice, this is not an external law. When we talk about the natural law, we're not talking about something that is external to us and that is being imposed on us. Rather, it is something that is within us. It is part of our design. And that makes it all the more demanding. Because you can always turn your back on an external law and just kind of pretend that it's not there. Uh, Parents, your children do this to you all the time, right? Um, But a law that is written on your heart as St. Paul describes it, is harder to ignore. Uh, And the more we try to ignore it, uh, the sadder we become. And that is why people try, people want to get away from it more and more because it makes so much demands and because it calls them to account not from outside of them, but from within their very selves. Lent is a great time to consider this because during Lent, our Lord and, and, and the church uh, are, are really calling us to reflect on how we have violated our own design. 
Let me make note of three other characteristics of the natural law. First, it is universal. Because it is natural, uh, that is rooted in our human nature, it is therefore universal. It applies to every human person. Its demands extend to every culture. There is no culture or society that can claim exemption, unless, of course, they choose to exempt themselves of their own humanity. So you can see why so many people do not like the natural law, because it does away with cultural relativism. We can't say that all cultures are the same because of this, this pesky thing called natural law. All cultures cannot be uh, equivalent when we have such a divergence of moral norms and cultures. One culture clearly will embrace and live out the natural law better than others. Uh, there's a story of, um, just heard it recently, about when the British ruled India and the, um, the Indians had the um, custom, was it Surah, of burning the widow on, on her husband's funeral pyre. And the, the British sought to eliminate that custom. And the Indians responded, well, this is our custom, this is our culture, um, and you need to respect it. And the British commander said, well, okay, well, we have our own custom and culture too. And uh, that says that we execute those who put the widows on their husband's funeral pyre. <laughs> Uh, we cannot, uh, as, as the Pope said in his recent encyclical on, on the Church's social teaching, uh, we have to be very careful about uh, making all cultures uh, equivalent, viewing them that way. Clearly, the natural law will take on a different expression uh, in, in different cultures. Uh, modesty, actually, the catechism makes, makes note of this, that modesty is, is something that every culture has a sense of, even ours, believe it or not, but no, no cultures really live it out in the same way. And what may have been considered modest at one time is uh, you know, immodest in another or vice versa. But the same principle remains, the principle of, for example, modesty. Second, the natural law is immutable. So first, it's universal. It applies in all places. Second, it's immutable. It applies in all times. One of the first situations I had in the parish was when a couple came to me because they wanted their child baptized. But it wasn't their child, it was his child. And they weren't married. Actually, they were married, but they were married to different people. Okay? Um, and he was not Catholic, but she was. Um, and so I pointed out that this was a highly irregular situation. Um, <laughs> And it did not, it did not uh, meet the requirements that the church has, that we have a well-founded hope that, that a, a, a child to be baptized will be raised Catholic. At which point, the woman said to me, come, she said, come on, Father, this is the 90s. Okay. There's no expiration date on the natural law. Okay. You don't turn it over and it says expires 1989. That it, um, that it is immutable. It applies in every time and place. It will look different, again, according to the time, place, and culture, but it holds in all times in its principles. And this is a splash of cold water in the face of modernity because it condemns the notion that we are somehow more advanced morally than every other time, that we now see things more clearly, and we see through all of the old taboos. 
And so the modern world has gone around uh, breaking down taboos only to find that those were actually load-bearing walls. Uh, the natural law is immutable. Uh, and the catechism points out that it rises again in society, and it is again in our own. People are even leaving their homes at night and traveling to foreign countries like Maryland to hear about the natural law. <laughs> so, so even if it's suppressed, it rises again. So. It is universal, it is immutable, and yet, at the same time, it is obscured. It is obscured. And this should answer an obvious objection that I hope is lingering in the minds of many here. Namely, if the natural law is so natural, so universal, and so immutable, then why do we need to be taught it? Why, does not, why doesn't it just kind of come to us naturally? It's a good objection, and it raises the truth that we do not see the demands of the natural law clearly. It is obscured for two reasons. First, because we are not as bright as we would like to think we are. Our, our intellects have been darkened by sin, original sin, and our own particular sins as well. We do not perceive the truth as clearly as God would have us do because of our darkened intellect. And the second reason is because we are not as good as we would like to think we are. Our ability to reason, which is necessary to understand the natural law, that ability to reason becomes, as we all know, the ability to rationalize. We hear the confessions of children when they reach the age of reason, which is also the age of rationalization. And all of the priests here know what I'm talking about, that you know, children will come in and some, make beautiful confessions sometimes, but other times will rationalize why they shouldn't. And children of all ages do that. Uh, it's a darkened intellect, a weakened will. That's why we don't see it clearly. And so there exists this disconnect within us, the disconnect between what is written in our hearts and then what by our intellect we perceive and by what our will we choose. It reveals us as divided. Man, at one and the same time, has this law within his heart and rebels against it. That makes us more curious than the animals. The animals at least obey their instinct. Uh, we cannot obey our tendencies uh, that are written in our hearts by natural law. And so we need reminders, clarifications, to help us live this out. Therefore, God has given us, for example, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments summarize the precepts of the natural law. And notice that the Ten Commandments are not commandments. They're statements. It is not, um, do not take the Lord's name in vain, is you shall not. It's not in accord with who you are. It's not in accord with the way that you are designed. And if you want to be happy, you need to observe uh, your design. Uh, the commandments are in the indicative, not the imperative. They are not requirements that are imposed from the outside, but simply uh, an, out, an external reminder 
of the design that is on the inside. They express uh, the obligations that arise from our human nature. And because the natural law is obscured, God has given us also the church. And the church is the external auditor of our conscience. Uh, That institution outside of us that helps us to make sure that we're examining ourselves properly and that we are getting things right. The church witnesses to the truth of who we are, why we have been created. Those of you who grew up with the Baltimore Catechism, you should remember this. Why have I been created? To know, love, and serve God in this world, to be happy with him in the next. This is the most basic thing we desire to know. What is my purpose? And remember, if we don't know the purpose of something, we get rid of it. Suicide is a modern phenomenon. People don't see uh, the purpose, and so they commit suicide, not to preserve their honor, but because they don't see any purpose for their honor. So the church is there to bear witness to who we are, our design, our purpose, so that we cannot rationalize otherwise. And confession is there during Lent so that we can go get audited and make sure that the books have not been cooked. So what are the contents of the natural law? And in this regard, I mean, there's diverse writings about this and perhaps opinions. I'm taking these from uh, a book by Servet Pinkers, a a famous Dominican moral theologian, um, his book called Morality, the Catholic View. Uh, And the list is skeletal. It's not detailed. Uh, And this is one of the fundamental things about the natural law. It is not a detailed list of, you know, uh, is it okay to go 56 miles an hour when the state trooper is passing you on the right? You know, uh, the natural law is not going to speak to that. It's going to speak to the general principles, the foundational principles, and then we, by our prudence, have to apply these things. And that's why you have to come to the talks on virtues, okay, when we're going to get into the issue of prudence. Um, the natural law proscribes certain things, um, but even more, it prescribes certain things. That is, it does not work by uh, forbidding things so much as it works by, uh, by commanding or, uh, even better, by, by attraction. Pinkers writes, the natural law does not primarily function by constraint, but by attraction. It expresses the tendencies that we have towards certain goods. The virtues help us to live these tendencies properly, in the proper order. The vices distort these tendencies and knock them off course, and so instead of arriving at this good for which I have been created, I arrive at that good, which is not what I was created for at all. So first, I've given it away, the natural inclination to the good. We all seek what is good. this is indefinable. It's, a, it's so basic a principle that we can't really define it. Everybody knows it instinctively. Even when we do things wrong, we do them because we think somehow that it is good. Uh, the famous quote that's been uh, attributed to Chesterton, um, although I haven't been able to find evidence of it, that uh, when a young man knocks on a brothel, he's looking for God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Point being that even when we do wrong, we are, we're seeking the good. 
In the New Testament, the word for sin, harmatia, to miss the mark. That's what it means to sin. Is I am go I'm shooting for the good, but I've missed the mark, or I've really missed the mark, okay, depending on the sin. But we all have this natural inclination to what is good. And from this arises the most basic moral command, do good, avoid evil. We all seek what is good, not just physical good, but moral uh, and spiritual good. Not just good in this world, but good in the next, uh, most especially. And from this arise certain obligations to seek the good and certain, certain rights because of that. We have to seek what is good according to our design. Second, the natural inclination to preserve our being. Self-defense. We all have an instinct for that. Our Lord had an instinct for that in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is why he says, if, if it's possible for this to pass for me, I would prefer that. Because it is not natural for us to die. That was not part of God's plan. So even our Lord draws away from that. Of course, he, he, he submits to the Father's will. He conforms his, will to the divine, his human will to the divine will. But we all have this natural inclination to preserve being. And therefore, we have an obligation to take care of ourselves, to take care of those who are entrusted to us. We have a right, therefore, to self-defense, and we have a right to those things necessary for life. And so we have from this, for example, the fifth and the seventh commandments. You shall not kill, uh, you shall not steal. Uh, because killing is to violate uh, this person's natural inclination to preserve his being, and to steal is to take away from him what is necessary for life. And again, this is not just physical life, but we should understand it with a supernatural outlook that's spiritual life as well. We have an obligation to this as well. Third, the inclination to marry. I got a phone call uh, just the other day uh, asking if I knew it was a reporter. Um, I know, I shouldn't have talked, but anyway. Um, uh, asking if I knew of any support groups uh, that priests go to to help live celibacy. That's making like, like celibacy is like drug addiction or alcoholism, you know. Do you have a support group to help you live that? Um, uh, and, uh, well, I said, no, I know a lot of priest support groups, but celibacy is just one aspect of the priest's life. Um, we have a natural inclination to marry. This is why the world, I mean, looks at celibacy and is amazed by it. Uh, because we do have this natural inclination. Uh, th this is why I, I don't think it is right, and I might part company with some, uh, some of my brother priests, but I don't think it's right for people to discern vocations by saying, well, I don't know if God is calling me to be married or to enter priesthood or religious life. Well, we have a natural inclination to marry. So we can presume that that's what you're supposed to do unless you have good indication otherwise. From this arise the fourth, the sixth, and the ninth commandments. This is the basis of society. Of, uh, of every society, marriage and the family. We have an inclination towards this. The virtue of chastity helps us to live this properly. 
by way of the natural, natural law, what this means is that marriage enjoys rights ahead of the state. No state can sort of condescendingly bequeath rights to married couples. No, marriage is the institution that precedes the state, and every state has to defer to marriage. This is just part of the natural law. This is not something that the church has invented. This is something that every culture has had an instinct for, that marriage and the family are the, the, the basic cell of society. Fourth, the inclination to know the truth. Who shot J.R.? Okay, dating myself again, I realize. But, uh, you know, why do we like mysteries? Why, <laughs> why are we suckered in by gossip columns and things like that? Because we have an inclination to know the truth. We want to know what is true, and the tabloids just sort of prey on that, and they, they get it off the mark. Uh, but we have this natural inclination to know the truth. It is the source of communion between beings gifted with reason. This is what makes for a richer life together when we share the truth together. This is a peculiarly human inclination. It's not shared at all with the animals. You don't sit down and ask your dog, well, who do you think shot JR? You know, uh, uh, animals don't have the desire because they don't have the inclination or the capacity. And from this inclination to the truth, we have the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness. From this, we have a freedom of conscience. You cannot force someone to believe what he does not want to believe. We have a right to education and an obligation to cultivate one's mind. The disorder in this regard leads to gossip. You know who's, who's the worst about that, by the way? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, um, it leads to gossip. It leads to curiosity. Uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux says that in, the, in the, step, the 12 steps towards pride, the first is curiosity. Uh, now think of the internet now. Curiosity. Um, that vice. This inclination to know the truth, when it is disordered, it even leads to witchcraft, to want, wanting to know things and using illicit means to know it. Fifth, the natural inclination to life in society. We are, by nature, social. Man is, by nature, a political animal. <laughs> that doesn't mean he's, by nature, like a Republican or Democrat or, you know. Uh, by nature, we, we are meant to live in society. This is the great difference between a lot of modern philosophy and the Catholic Church's social teaching. Man is not an atomized individual. Each one of us is not, you know, just this atomized individual kind of bouncing around and we all have to sort of negotiate so we can secure our rights to get what we want. That's the modern notion of society. The traditional and still the Catholic notion is that we are by nature social. And so the state is to serve this natural inclination to live in society. This generates also the concern for the common good. We have a responsibility toward one another. It's one good thing about the Snowmageddon. 
is that you know you were trapped and you actually had to get to know your neighbors. Didn't know you had them, had to go help you know, shovel their driveway or whatever else. Amazing, people actually leaving their houses and interacting. Uh, it was something good. Uh, and for this reason, we have the virtues of justice and charity to help us live in society in the proper way. And the disorder that arise, the disorders um, are individualism. As long as I have mine and you have yours, that's it, and we're just, you know, that's it. Or socialism. Two extremes. So having said all that, especially as regards the, the, these five, uh, five inclinations, the natural inclination to the good, to preserve being, to marry, to know the truth, to life in society. Um, some practical things uh, as regards um, natural law. First, confidence in presenting the moral truths. The human heart is created for the truth. Human reason is created in order to grasp the natural law. All we need to do is present these things in a way that appeal to the heart and appeal to reason. Many people have a will against it because they want to live the way they want to live. But not everyone, and I dare to say not, not even most people. So we should be confident that by calmly and peacefully and charitably presenting the truths of the natural law, that, that we are not offending anyone. We are simply articulating something that they were created for. Uh, we are ordered for these things, and we are just expressing to people what is the design. Parents should keep this in mind. I see a number of young families here. Should keep this in mind in raising their children. You're not imposing something foreign to your child. Uh, all parental discipline should really be a matter of trying to tease out of the child what, what the natural law already says is, is the child is inclined to. Um, one of the best lines that parents use is, um, you know better than that. Um, or, <laughs> yeah, I got that one. Um, and uh, it's, it's great because it does express that you, you do know better than this because you've been created for better than what you've done. And the child usually, no child has ever said, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, the child usually says, yeah, I know, I know better than that. Second, moral freedom. We are most free and most happy when we are living according to our design, according to our purpose. We are most unhappy when we are kicking against it, rebelling against the design. The natural law does not infringe on our freedom. It makes us more free. Um, if you tell a bird it must fly, <laughs> be happy. That's what it's created to do. It's supposed to do that. Uh, and when a bird is not able to fly, it doesn't make it less free. It doesn't make it more free. Well, I'm a bird now. I can, you know, I don't have to act like the other birds. I can. I'm not going to fly like them. No, the ability to do what it's supposed to do, to do what it's designed to do, makes it more free. And so this does not do any violence to us or to others to live the natural law. It is not contrary to us. Again, it is not something imposed on us from without. It is something that is called um, out from within us. And finally, um, in political dialogue, uh, here... Uh, 
well, I guess it's in D.C., we're not in D.C., but um, certainly the Archdiocese has, been, has had to be facing the, the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, uh, this is not the teaching against uh, so-called homosexual marriage. This is a, not a matter of Catholic doctrine, the way the Trinity or transubstantiation or the, the Immaculate Conception are. You don't have to be a Catholic. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't really have to believe in God to arrive at a reasonable object, objection to that law. It, it, it's really just part of the human design. Uh, and so a lot of the hot button topics in our culture, marriage, abortion, everything surrounding sexuality, really all, what these all have to do with is our design. What are we designed for? Uh, is there a design? Because if there's not, then we're fools to act morally in any way whatsoever. But if there is a design, well, not only ought we observe it, but we won't be happy unless we do. So, uh, observing Sabatino's good advice, uh, I will conclude there, uh, and then uh, in a few minutes we'll have time for questions. Thank you. I got rules for you. Five minutes max, five questions max, whatever we reach first, but here's the deal. Your question is one sentence long. It has to do with the talk. And it has a question mark on the end. If you got to take a breath, I'm cutting you off. All right? So, okay, sir. Uh, Father, is the natural law, as it was explained today, identical to the laws of God that the jurisprudence people talked about in 250 years ago, or is there a distinction? Yeah, kaboom. That's a, that's a very uh, controversial question. Is the natural law, as I articulated it, and I hope I did so accurately, uh, is that what the founders, founders of our nation intended by the phrase, the laws of nature and nature's God? Is that, did I do justice to your question? Well, I think you know what Blackstone called God's law. Uh, okay, well, same, same tradition. This is an area of great debate is exactly what is meant by the natural law. Do we go with the Aristotelian, Thomistic tradition, which I tried to be faithful to uh, this evening, or uh, a more modernist uh, tradition, Locke and, and, and others? And that, that is uh, a big, that, that's a big controversy. So I, um, I would say no, this is not the same as, as, as what is, was generally accepted in our nation's history. Uh, because our nation, nation generally Protestant, uh, did not have the natural law tradition. And so it was really kind of coming from some other source. It's, of course, going to be, there are going to be a lot of similarities. But uh, that's such a huge issue that uh, it's about all I want to say about that, because otherwise I'm going to get, um, but while I've got the microphone. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to recommend uh, Jay Budaszewski's, um, no, I won't spell it, uh, uh, Jay Budaszewski's uh, books, uh, if, What We Can't Not Know is one of them, um, and uh, Revenge of Conscience. Uh, he is uh, one of the best writers on this. He's really extraordinary and, and a good writer. So, I mean, he's not only accurate, but he's, uh, it's a good read. Uh, he has a great piece that appeared in Touchstone maybe five years ago called Designed for Sex. Uh, it's not as racy as it might sound. It's just a good natural articulation of sexual morality. Um, 
Just by the way, uh, I was supposed to just give a talk on virtues. And then, uh, I don't know, I think it was before Christmas at some point, I was doing some reading, uh, and I went, gosh, you know, we can't talk about virtues unless we get to natural law first. You can't talk about what ought to be unless you first talk about what is. So I called Sabatino, and I, and I started saying that to him. And as soon as the words left my mouth, I regretted it. <laughs> Um, and so he works by the same principle as I do as a pastor, which is um, whoever makes a criticism volunteers. <laughs> so um, a question came up uh, during the break, and I'm, this is, I'm just, I've got the microphone, so <laughs> I'm the president, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, about Islam and the natural law. Islam has no natural law. It's contrary to their understanding of Allah because the natural law would confine Allah. And in order for him to uh, be all-powerful, he cannot be confined in any way, even by reason. Um, and so uh, that is one of the great, great difficulties. No Ten Commandments, no natural law. Uh, the standard for morality is Muhammad. And if you know something about his life, that should concern you. Any other questions? I was wondering, how do you reconcile natural law described as written on the human heart with going along the Thomistic tradition of innate knowledge versus knowledge through the senses? Um, can you really say that you're born knowing the natural law or more the inclinations you're born with is a basis for learning the natural law? Uh, I don't think Thomas would talk about it as innate. Um, but uh, yeah, it's natural in the sense of it is, it is accessible by reason, which we possess by nature. Okay, And so yes, these, these natural inclinations that we have upon rational reflection, but by using our reason, we, we, can, we can perceive uh, the design there. Um, and so uh, it was the second one that you, that you said, <laughs> uh, that it is, yeah, the, the inclinations that, that, that we, all, we have and we observe. Um, and then by use of our reason, we can perceive the design. Uh, Thomas wouldn't, uh, and my priest brothers here might um, know more on this than, than I, I don't think he would talk about innate, it, it being an innate knowledge. Um, but perceived through the sense, it would be more Thomistic. And, um, and so, yeah, nothing, nothing in the elect, not first in the sentence, senses, so. Father, was natural law theory used to defend slavery? Yeah, that, that's another, I mean, <laughs> that, that's a, it's, it's, it's a question that is, I think, of such magnitude uh, as, as the other one that I imagine some did try to marshal natural law defense of, of slavery, um, but obviously uh, the same uh, could be marshaled against slavery. So I, I, don't, I don't know the history of that. Last question. Okay, Father Scalia, I just listened to your talk today, as a matter of fact, on um, moral relativism. And in that talk, um, someone was asking you, or you were talking about, 
you know, how do we talk to another person about the Catholic faith when they are a moral relativist? And you said you need to listen to the talk on the natural law to be able to talk to them. <laughs> Could you elaborate on this? <laughs> I think you're going to need to listen to a talk on the virtues. <laughs> Well, relativism is, is, is really a rejection of, of the natural law. That's what it is. It's, it's looking at things and saying there is no design to human sexuality or to human relationships, to society, uh, that it's, it's all sort of haphazard or it depends on the culture, uh, but there, there is no design and therefore there's no purpose. Therefore, we can do with it whatever we want. Uh, and, and so that, that is why, really, uh, that's why the Holy Father has encouraged uh, a study and articulation of the natural laws because of the dictatorship uh, of relativism that he, um, that he articulated even before he was, he was Pope. So. Okay. conclude in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Asking Our Lady's protection and intercession, we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Joseph, Saint Bernadette. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.